So we're going to go back to Judges this morning. We're in chapter 16. We're still dealing with Samson. Last week, the title of the sermon was The Mysterious Samson. So this week, the title is The Mysterious Mysterious Samson, Part 2. He is indeed a mysterious figure, and probably you're like most of Christians down through the ages. You have some real difficulty in your understanding of this man. He is a complex character indeed. A couple of writers that I've read in studying for this seem to have captured his life very well. I want to give you their words. The first is, Samson, though called by grace... Bound by vow, repeatedly empowered, greatly gifted, yet often faithless, self-indulgent, and only all too ready to fraternize with the enemy. Seems to be a faithful recollection of Samson's life. The other is this. Samson, one raised up out of nothing, richly gifted, yet panders around with other loves and yet always expects to, quote, have his God when he wants him. And God in grace, for the most part, was always there for Samson. Even in the end, really, he was. But what a dangerous way to live, frittering away our lives in sin and yet always expecting to have the Lord when we decide we're ready for him. Another person has said of Samson, when he is not saving Israel, he is being Israel. And in that, Samson is a perfect illustration of the nation itself. Called and especially graced of God, but yet always being led by the flesh, committing spiritual adultery by going after other gods and forsaking the God that has been so gracious to them. This is one of the, one of the ways we should primarily view Samson. He was a type of Christ, and we're going to deal with that, but the mystery of Samson is that he is also a type of a rebellious people. He's both. We need to see him as both. Greatly blessed of God, called by grace, yet he is continually committing adultery against God by going after false gods and the people of false gods. And in very many ways, Samson was a perfect mirror for the nation of Israel. And I think as we try to put ourselves in their place as being the first ones to read of Samson, The scripture is unique in that it had real meaning for its initial hearers, and it has real meaning for those of us who hear it now so far removed from its origin. If they were a discerning reader, then they would have been condemned by this man's life. So privileged, and yet fell over and over again into spiritual sin. So let's take up verse 1 of chapter 16. And the first point here that I want to make of these first few verses, I've just entitled this point, An Ox to the Slaughter. 
seems to be fitting for Samson. Before I read those first few verses, I want to read to you from Proverbs 7, because this seems to fit so well. Samson could be the poster child for these verses. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost his life. Now therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many Wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men, the strongest of which being Samson. Let's read it here in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night as the, at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. This is the beginning of the end. The real beginning of the end. Nothing with Samson has been very well, has it? The highest point of Samson was in his mother's womb. You realize that? Because it was there that the angel came, announced his birth, said he would begin to deliver from the hand of the Philistines. All of these great prophetical sayings were made about him. That's the highlight of his life. Tucked away there inside of his mother. As soon as he begins to have any understanding at all, as soon as he grows old enough to begin to notice his surroundings, we find him in verse 1 of chapter 14. Just after we're told the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, he sees a woman, not of his own people, and he tells his father, I must have her. That's the story of his life repeated several times over. That's why he fits so well as an illustration of Proverbs chapter 7. All who were slain by her were strong men. Samson, David, Solomon being the most notable to fall at the hands of an adulteress. Let me say this very clearly to all men, and especially to young men, Satan would destroy you right here as well. This is where he wants to take you, to reduce you to a crust of bread. So be warned by these men. Don't let this be lost upon you. Now, the interesting thing here in these first few verses, this whole issue of Samson and the harlot at Gaza, he leaves at midnight. Now, pay attention to the details because he's completely surrounded. They knew better than to mess with him at night 
they knew better to mess with him at all, really. But here they supposed in their mind that they were going to wait till morning and then they will kill him. We don't know what their plan was. They must have had a good one. It would have failed if they had tried to carry it out. He had already proven that he was too much for them, killing a thousand of them armed only with a piece of bone from a donkey. But the interesting thing about Samson here, he's always displaying great acts of or displays of strength. And obviously the Lord is behind that. This is not him in a natural physical man's strength. And a bit of this is lost on us here in the first few verses because the details come so quickly. And in our minds, when we think of a gate of a city in the, in the gate post, we might be thinking of, you know, a four foot wide piece of chain link with two little posts. That's not what Samson carried. That is not what he uprooted. You've seen in, in movies of, of the walls around the city and how those two large gates, some of them two or three stories tall, with gate posts that were, would have been several feet in diameter and would have been sunk in the ground, no telling how far. That's what Samson uprooted. That's what Samson threw on his back. And here's the, if that wasn't enough, most Bible scholars think by the details given that he carried these gates about 40 miles up a hill. That, that detail is clearly given. He put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Those who know the lay of the land far better than I do conjecture that at least he carried them several miles and as many as 40. And why did he do that? I think he's mocking these men that had surrounded him. Really? You, you're going to come after me. Let me show you something. I'm going to take the gates of your town. I'm going to uproot them. I'm going to carry them miles away. Let's see how you get them back. So this is just Samson being clever and Samson mocking these men. But notice, though he leaves Gaza, he will come back. He left in great glory. He left with a great a display of strength. He left no doubt in anyone's mind that he was not someone to be trifled with. But he comes back completely humiliated before them and the Lord. We're going to see that before we end with chapter 16. So that's the only details we, we have of him in Gaza with this harlot. But then we move immediately into the account of Samson yet again in the hands of a seductress. And this one, this Delilah, is the end of him. It's interesting what her name means. Her name means literally to languish. Can be interpreted as feeble or weakness. And she did live up to her name, at least with Samson. Because she revealed his weakness and he did languish there in her lap as the Philistines rest upon him and he could not do anything about it this time. So when you look at the account of he and Delilah, it begins in verse 4. 
So after, sometime after, he lugs these gates miles up a hill and, and sets them down and leaves them for the people of Gaza to deal with, it happens that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Pay attention to that detail, he loved a woman, because as we read through these details, we're going to ask the question time and time again, Samson, what are you thinking? She is trying to kill you. But yet he over and over and over for the fourth time either just ignores it or is just completely blinded to it. And I think that that's how we understand the word loved here. Samson, though he had had his relations with these other women, he is completely smitten by Delilah. We aren't given many details about her. Interestingly, she's the only one that has a name. The only one of these women that he has relations with, she's the only one that is actually named, and I think that's significant because of what her name means. So he loves her, and the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, they make a deal, and here's the deal, entice him, and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. If we go based upon the numbering that Joshua gives, the book just prior, there's five lords of the Philistines, so she stands to gain here 5,500 pieces of silver. That's a haul for her. That's why she continually tries to trick him. Obviously, she did not love him back. She was in it for the money. And I've said earlier that Samson is unique and mysterious in the fact that he is a type of Christ and a type of a rebellious people at the same time. See here how he is a type of Christ in that the person who is declaring allegiance and love for him betrays him for money. Does Judas factor into that equation? Judas does the same thing. He betrays the Christ whom he had professed to love for money. Money is indeed the root of all evil. We see it here again displayed with Delilah. So she asks him over and over and over, four times over, beginning in verse 6. She says to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Notice here that they didn't say they were going to kill him. Just afflict him. And if there's any, any credit we can give them, they stayed true to that word. They didn't kill him, they, but they did afflict him. So this is the first time that she asks for this. And here's part of the mystery of Samson. One whose birth was announced by the angel of the Lord is a liar. He's a deceiver. Doesn't seem to fit. He says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to Delilah seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. So here's the first time we ask the question. Now, Samson, you're not very bright. 
Something about you is, is just not right. And it has to go back to verse 4, where he is completely taken with her. So what does he do? After she binds him, and then the question is asked, how could she have done this? I mean, he, as we read through this, the only assumption we can make is he must be the most sound sleeper in history. She does things to him while he is asleep that would, you would think would arouse anyone from their sleep. And so some people think, well, she drugged him in some way. Maybe she did. Regardless, she binds him with seven bowstrings and she wakes him and she says to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. That's the first. The second. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So he falls into a fast sleep. She takes new ropes, binds him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. It's the second. And the third time, verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom... So this is where he must have been really asleep. She wove it tightly. Here's an interesting note. You see the word wove there in verse 14? Turn back all the way to chapter 5 in verse 21, something that we covered weeks ago. This word is found there as well. And it's with the issue of J.L. This is what J.L. does to, you remember the whole issue of when she drives the peg down through the skull? This is the same word. Obviously, I've misplaced the reference. I didn't write it down right, but you remember that. This is the same word. She wove it. And what she's doing here is driving his hair down into the loom, packing it so tight. And she was hoping for the same outcome. But obviously it didn't happen. She says for the fourth time, the third time, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from sleep and he pulled the batten and the web from the loom. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not yet told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass, notice this, when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed. 
to death. If you have a notation there in your Bible, it means that he became impatient of life. In other words, Samson was ready to die. By the time Delilah was finished with him, just daily, minute by minute, pestering him until he finally, in verse 17, tells her his whole heart. And says, no razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. And something was different this time because Delilah saw that she had told her all of his heart. So she sends for the Philistines. They come. She says, come up once more, for he has told me his whole heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hand, which was what she was after. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him as if she hadn't already. And his strength left him. And she said, this is the fourth time now, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep. He's very confident. He says, I will go out as before at other times, shake myself free. But here's the pitiful part of this narrative. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He didn't know. He would soon find out. Verse 21 tells us what the Philistines did with him. They took him and put out his eyes. Now that's, that is a mild, tolerable description of what they did. We can stomach that. I don't want this to be gruesome, but the literal language is they bored out his eyes. This was not, I don't suppose any way of having your eyes rendered useless would have been pleasant, but this one seems to be that they removed his eyeballs from their sockets. And they brought him down to Gaza. Where did we begin in chapter 16? Samson in Gaza with the harlot. He took the gates of the city, threw them on his back, carried them up the hill, left them. And, we, and I said earlier that he left in great glory with a great display of strength. And now they are bringing him back into the city. I don't know if he went through that same hole in the wall where he had ripped the gates out. He wouldn't have been able to see it anyway. But wouldn't it be ironic if he had walked right back through there? What do they do with him? They put him in bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. And what that means is Samson became a mill donkey, so to speak. You know, you've seen those images of, of the little donkey just walking around in a circle, hitched, and he's being used, his strength. That's, that's what Samson has been reduced to. He's here in Gaza again. But then we get this interesting verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again. And we make the assumption here, Samson was so blinded by his love, and maybe we should just call it what it is, his lust for Delilah, 
And we, and we say, Samson, you mustn't have been very smart. Well, how smart were the Philistines? Wouldn't you have shaved his head again? I would. I'd have said, no chance of this is going to happen. I'm going to shave your head every morning. But his hair begins to grow. And, and we have to be honest even here. The hair was not the source of his strength. The Lord was the source of his strength. The hair was only symbolic of that. The hair goes back to the vow of being a Nazarite. No razor shall touch his head. And so really the shaving of his head was breaking the vow. That's what caused the spirit of the Lord to depart from him. But here is something that we miss in this whole story of Samson. This is where we begin to ask questions, and this is the only answer that, we've, that we can give to these questions. Questions like this, why does God continue to empower this scoundrel? And that's, that's really what he is. Why does God continue to use this sinful man? And as we fast forward to the end of the chapter, we might even ask the question, why does the scripture here seem to condone the taking of your own life? And there are many other questions that we could ask. And we could get ourselves all tied into a knot of confusion regarding Samson. And that's what, that's what we do when we read his story. If we don't read verse 23 through 24, then we are left with a knot of confusion as to why the Lord did with Samson what he did. But here's the answer to all those questions. Here's how the knot comes apart. Verse 23 says, The lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon. And, and you remember Dagon. When the, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Dagon's temple, what happened? He fell on his face, broke to pieces. But here is another mention of this, of this God. The lords of the Philistines gather together, offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. There's a big problem with this. Their God was no God. He had no power. The only thing that could attribute Samson being delivered into their hands was the Lord's removal of his strength and blessing upon Samson, allowing him to be brought into this. But that really isn't even the point here. The point is that the God of the scriptures the creating, sustaining, all-powerful God who had made himself known through Samson before is now being mocked because of the state of Samson. And it's like the lords of the Philistines are saying in the rejoicing in the sight of God, look at your man now. He has no eyes and he's a grinder in the, in the prison. Our God, Dagon, is greater When the people saw Samson, verse 24, they praised their God. This is what they said. Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. All of what they are saying is an indictment upon the one true God. All of what they are saying 
is a boast against the power of the one true God. Giving this God that they had constructed in their own making all the credit and all the glory. So to answer those questions, why does God continue to empower this scoundrel? The only way we can answer that is to clear his own name. To display his own power. To make clear to the Philistines, you have got it completely wrong. Your God has done nothing. I have allowed this. And so the Lord's last empowering of Samson, as confusing as it may be, is just a lesson for the Philistines. Dagon is nothing. You are nothing. I am everything. Samson, yes, was my chosen servant from his mother's womb. Yes, he fell into sin over and over again, but let me show you something else. This is another way that we can answer the question regarding Samson. You have to go all the way back to when his birth was announced to his mother. And this is what the Lord says. The woman came and told her husband, I'm in verse 6 of chapter 13. The woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very terrible, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink nor eat anything unclean. Here's the important part of this. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. That's important because of what Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Samson proved in very many ways to be faithless. But what had God said? From his womb to his death, he is a Nazarite unto me. The Lord's empowering of Samson, if we only look at it from the perspective of Samson the man, it's mysterious and it's confusing. But when we back away from it and we look at the larger picture and we see how the honor of God is at stake. And the faithfulness of God is at stake. Will he break his word? The answer to that is never will he break his word. Would Samson die in the mill grinding Having God proven to be unfaithful to what he had said, why was it that the Philistines didn't kill him? Because they could not, or it would have broken the word of God. Do you see the sovereign providential hand at God all over the story of Samson? 
we miss it in some of the details. We, we get enraptured by Samson's dealing with women. We get enraptured by Samson's strength. We get enraptured by all of these different things, and we completely miss the overarching story of the glory and honor of God upon his enemies and his faithfulness to what he has said in Scripture being at stake with this man, Samson. Again, to quote Paul, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. One of the commentaries I read this week said this, God is determined to build his people. Even if his people become their own worst enemy and their leaders fail, the grace of God will triumph in the end. That's why we read in the, in the New Testament things like what Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But yet, in our experience, we look. The church very often is a weak, feeble collection of people who are sinful. Don't you see Samson in that? We don't want to, to relate with Samson, but very often, though our sin may not reach the height and experience of his, we're just as unfaithful. Very often. We have to repent very often. We transgress the law of God very often. And if God did not prove himself faithful to what he had said, I will build my church, we would totally tear it down around us. We would destroy it. So apply that same logic and truth to the life of Samson. Samson tried to tear the honor of God down around him by his own lust and sin. God would not have it. And this is the last straw. The lords of the Philistines praising their God, rejoicing as they look at Samson and how they supposedly had humbled him. And we pick back up with the story in verse 25. So it happened when their hearts were merry. In other words, they were in a drunken stupor that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. We don't know what kind of performance Samson did, but most think, and I think there's something to this, that they just put Samson out in the open and watched him stumble and bumble around and, and trip over things and just laugh and mock him and think in their own thoughts, this is the great Samson, the one that ripped up our gates and hauled them up the hill, the one that killed all of our men. This is what we have reduced him to. And he was performing for them on that level. And, but they made a fatal mistake. They positioned him between two pillars, or between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, perhaps that was part of their mockery. Here's this great man being led around by a child. He says to the lad, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so I can lean on them. The temple itself was full of men and women. Remember, this is a pagan temple. This is the temple of Dagon. It is filled with about 3,000 men. That detail is given in verse 27. Men and women on the roof watching Samson while he performed. So here, not only the, the lords of the Philistines, but thousands of people are mocking Samson. Thousands of people are declaring, our God, Dagon, has delivered us. 
Now do you understand why the Lord empowered Samson one last time to do what he did? He's about to put an end to all of this. Enough. Let me show you how wrong you are. Samson called to the Lord. Here's an amazing part of this story. It's not said explicitly, certainly implied. God heard him. He heard this man who time and time and time again proved to only do what was right in his own eyes and to be guided by his own lust. Do you see the mercy of God in hearing one like that? Samson called to the Lord, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Here's, here's the incredible thing. Even in the end, Samson is thinking about me. The overarching story, God is saying in answer, Samson, I'm going to use you one last time to vindicate my own name. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. And he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might. The temple fell on the lords of of the people and all the people who were in it. And then this detail, the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel for 20 years. And like I said last week, we only have a few details of those 20 years. We have the highlights of his unfaithfulness, but the Spirit of God and the writer of Hebrews knew something different about Samson. That's why he's in that 11th chapter in the 32nd verse. But let me end with this. I've told you several times now that Samson was unique in that he was a type of a rebellious people and a type of Christ. I don't want to press this too hard, but I I want to see the imagery. We're about to observe the supper. How fitting when we consider this. The last we see of Samson, his arms are outstretched on two pillars. And he says this, let me die with the Philistines. You see Christ there? The last we see of Christ, his arms are outstretched. And his arms are outstretched there because of his willingness to die with and for sinners. So don't miss that great illustration 
All of these judges that we've looked at, they're just small pictures and types of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. Obviously, he is the last, the final, one true and living judge. But Samson here pushes and he dies carrying out the plan of God upon a sinful people. The Lord Jesus Christ pushed himself all the way to Calvary. He carried on his back not the gates of a city, he carried on his back his own instrument of death as far as he could in his humanity and then another took it up and bore it for him. What we saying earlier, propitiation won, God's wrath assuaged, taken away by this one man. And then the vindication of that three days later when he raised him from the dead. So as we partake of the supper this morning, just remember that for all of your failings, that for all of your sin, if you are in Christ and in Christ in truth by having come to him, believing that he is everything he said he is and that he has accomplished everything that he said he did in the scriptures all the way till it is finished. And you may remember some of your own failings and fallings into sin and in that you can relate certainly an eye to Samson. But know this. And this is where we, this is where we so easily take heart. Samson made it all the way over into Hebrews 11. He was there based on the merits of someone else. Couldn't have got there on his own. But he was there based upon the merits of his Lord and ours. You see, Samson understood at some point in his life, his robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful exchange of righteousness. All of our unrighteousness imputed to your holy son, you making him sin in our place, considering him to be sin, punishing him as though he were sinful when he was perfect and spotless like a lamb before its shearers being silent Father would you give us an even more full realization of our standing before you based upon his merits Lord, some may be here this morning thinking, how am I going to make it all the way to glory? I've done so much that's wrong. I've sinned against you in so many ways. We will make it all the way to glory 
because Christ is carrying us there. He's taking us there. We are captives in his train as he leads many sons to glory. What willing captives we are. Lord, we're thankful for your mercy, thankful for your grace. And we pray and ask your blessing upon our observance of this ordinance. We do so in Jesus' name.